Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in a sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abram and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. 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 And welcome to all of you here today once more, whether you're in here, you're in our overflow room, or you're joining us on our podcast. Welcome to uh, this week's episode in the story of the Bible, where we're looking at where what we call the Bible came from and what the big picture is. And for those of you who are new, and I know we've got new people here every single week, let me just catch us all up as to where we are. First of all, we've looked at the creation of the world and the catastrophe of sin and the calling of Abraham, the community of Israel, then the conquest of Canaan, the crown of Israel. And last week we saw the corruption and the captivity of God's people. And then, after that captivity now, 
For 400 long years, biblically speaking, 400 years, it appeared that God was silent. It appeared that the the story of God, the story of the Bible had come to an end after these people came back from captivity. They they rebuilt their nation. Uh, They were conquered all over again by Rome. Oh no, what would happen to the story? Uh, What was the story of God? Was Was it over? Where would the trail of the story pick back up? Well, we're going to see, and someone named Luke is going to show us where it picks, at, picks it back up, and I'll set Luke up like this. Once upon a time, there was no the Bible. Once upon a time, there was no uh, Christianity. There was no church. There were, there were no gospels. Uh, there was no building or nice music or worship or anything like that. Once upon a time, there was only a Roman cross, a dead body. And a bunch of broken-hearted disciples. And in that moment, there looked like no way forward for the people or the movement of, of Jesus, anything associated with him. But then in one moment, everything changed. In one moment, Jesus Christ was resurrected. And then everything changed again. Hundreds and hundreds of people, history records, now began to see him alive again. Reported that they ate with him, that he proved to them he was alive again. And sure, there was this rumor that went around, that his disciples stole the body. Why? Because there was no body. All the Jews had to do, all the Romans had to do was furnish a body, but they couldn't because there wasn't. And and Jesus had come back to life again. And when that happened, now something strange happened again that hasn't happened before or since in human history. And here's what I mean. Sociologists tell us that religion is always the product of human culture. They would tell us what we're doing here today, just a product of human culture. Humans want meaning in life. We don't want meaning to end, and, what, and we want our culture to last. And therefore, we construct a way to deal with death. And what humans call dealing with death, sociologists call Religion, religion. And religion is what a guy named Peter Berger, a skeptic, a sociologist himself, talked about. He wrote a book called The Sacred Canopy. And he says in there, he says, religion is like a a big umbrella. It's like this holy umbrella, canopy, that cultures put up over themselves to help themselves deal with death. And because religion, therefore, is one culture's way of dealing with death and giving meaning to life, that means its followers are always primarily members of that one ethnic group or culture, which means this. If that culture ever fades or or dies, so does that religion. For example, think about Incan religion, the Incas in Peru. Uh, It is, for all purposes, what? It's extinct. Why? It was produced by one culture, and when that one culture died, its religion went away. And that's what Peter Berger and others say is the case with every single religion, every single faith system, except, he says, for the historical peculiarity of Christianity. What's he saying? Well, through gritted teeth, he's thankfully, honestly acknowledging that Christianity doesn't fit in the classic religion box. And therefore, there's never been anything like it before or since in the history of the world. How can he, a skeptic, say this? Why is the Jesus movement a historical peculiarity? 
He's saying this because he knows and history shows that the Christian faith is not the product of any one culture. Jesus, you see, was Jewish, but the Jews cast him out. They rejected him for claiming to be God. Nor was Jesus the product of the Roman Empire. The Romans crucified him because he claimed to be king. But then when he was resurrected, proving he was God of the Jews and king to the Romans, his movement began in the least likely place for a movement to begin. It began between the Roman Empire and the Jewish temple. It impossibly survived as impossible and unlikely as bacteria surviving in bleach. And because of that, not just historical peculiarity, but historical fact now. People in the first century from every ethnic background from all over the known world began to do what had never been done before or since. People from Europe to the Middle East to Africa began to follow Jesus. And as all these non-Jews put their faith in this one Messiah for the whole world, they did not have the Bible. All they had were what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, what we Christians call the Old Testament. So they went looking in there to learn more about Jesus' backstory. But, but they needed more than this, and so... As these now early churches, first century, these ecclesias began to grow, some of the first followers, as they began to be martyred for Jesus... Others of them now began to write down their stories, their interactions with Jesus before they were also martyred for their faith than some of them were. And these accounts written down, we now call the Gospels. And one Gospel in particular is helpful for us today in our story. One of them was written, again, not by a Jew. What kind of a faith system has someone outside their faith system write about it? This one does. A Greek doctor named Luke and Dr. Luke opens his account by telling you he went on a first century quest like a reporter to see if what all these different ethnic groups with the Jesus movement had been taught was true. And this is how he opens his account. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. Lots of, lots of writings of Jesus going around. The things that had been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning... And the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He's saying, I've talked to the eyewitnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I've done this so that you may know, here's the word, the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Dr. Luke here, he's doing two things at once. First, he's saying to all these different ethnic groups, what I've written, you can believe. It's true, it happened. And second, he's showing us today for our story. He's saying that he's found the trail. He's found the trail. He's found the trail now of where the story of God is picked up after 400 long years of silence. And he's saying the story of God, the story of the Bible, after 400 years now is picked up, he says, he shows us with the story of a woman. The story of a woman. That brings us now today, finally, to the sermon. Saying that was, yeah, that was just my intro. I hope you liked it. I'm just getting going. Back now to our story. Back to the woman in the story of God. Of course, we know her name, don't we? We know her name. But before she was ever known as anything else, before she was ever known as the virgin, as the blessed one, before she was ever hailed as 
being full of grace or, or painted by any artist. Before she was ever put on a candle, you can now buy at Target. And that's weird, by the way, right? I mean, could you imagine your face with a halo over it being marked down for clearance at the superstore? I'm just not making fun of it. I'm just sort of saying, you know, WWMT. What would Mary think, right? No, for real. I mean, there's no way she could have imagined that what she does here would end up there. She couldn't have seen it coming. Before she was any of that, a painting on a candle, Mary was the first, hear me, the first Christian. She was the first person to ever encounter the historical peculiarity of Jesus Christ, the first human to ever have a relationship with Jesus. And that's what I want to look at today as we look at now, here's your C word, at the Christ, the Christ. You may have heard that Jesus Christ came so that you could know him personally. And if you've heard that, like we're going to see today, that's absolutely true. And yet a quick disclaimer before I get into the sermon. But Jesus came for far, far more than to only have a personal relationship with you. As we looked at that summer last week, we'll look at that in the weeks to come. He's come to heal people across racial and ethnic lines. He's come to heal the planet. He's going to come to judge the living and the dead, the Bible says. But before any of that here, we're going to see he's come for you. He's come for me. He's come for our hearts today. And how he comes into our lives, I want to look at through the lens of how he came into the life of the first person to ever know him, a person he made, by the way, his own mother, Mary. So what does it look like now, after all of that, to have a relationship with the historical peculiarity of Jesus Christ? What are the marks of a life with Jesus the Christ in it? Three marks. We're going to see a relationship with Jesus. Number one, means that we see something. Number two, it means that we say something. And finally, it means that we sing something. It means we see, say, and sing something. We'll look at these each in turn. Number one, it means that we see something. So let's ask, well, what did now, what did Mary see? What did she see about her relationship with Jesus? Well, Luke tells us this. Look at this. It says, God sent the angel... Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Her name was Mary. So you're asking, well, Morgan, what did Mary see? It seems fairly obvious. Mary saw an angel. And yes, she did. That's part of her story. But hear me, that's not all that she saw there. Here's what I mean. The Bible makes the claim that you and I, that we don't just see with our eyes, but that we can see with our hearts. Uh, later on, Paul the Apostle, he's, he's praying for his friends and he prays that the, he says, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. The eyes of their heart would see something about God. So he's saying that your eyes can see something, that your, your heart can see something, that your eyes don't or can't. So what does Mary see here? Not just an angel with their eyes, but she sees a truth with her heart. What was it? Verse 28. Let's see. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. Now, I think for most of us, if we heard that, we would say, Of course, I'm highly favored. It's me, right? And by the way, Mr. Gabriel, I'm not just <clears throat> highly favored. You left out the blessed part. I am blessed and highly favored because it's me. We, we think we'd be excited 
to see an angel. But if you look more closely, you'll see Mary is not excited at all about this. Not at all. Matter of fact, Mary's beginning to feel something else here. And what she's feeling down deep, you can see, is, is triggered by and confirmed by the next words from the angel. The angel says, the Lord is with you. And look what it says is going on inside Mary. Mary was greatly troubled at his words. It goes on to say, and she wondered at what kind of greeting this was. She's not excited at all. Why was she troubled? Well, partly, yeah, there's because there's an angelic, giant angelic being in front of her. That would trouble me too. But that's not all she is seeing. Let me try to help you. If you've seen... The new Transformers movie, yes, called Bumblebee. It's actually a good one. Most of those other ones are terrible. They're not worth your time. Unwatchable, I would say. But this one's really good. My wife loved it. All right. Because it's a great story. It's got this great female heroine in it. Her name is Charlie. All right. And there's this great scene in the movie uh, where uh, the secret government police because there are always secret government police in these movies, right? The secret government police have found out that Charlie is hiding sort of this, you know, new version of E.T. It's this giant alien robot, right, in her garage. You know, they found this out. They've come into her home, and they begin to interrogate her parents. It's a blended family, and her stepdad gets nervous. He's supposed to be funny, and he gets nervous, and he blurts out. He's sitting across the table from this really intimidating government agent, the former pro wrestler John Cena. I'd be intimidated too, but he says with this, her stepdad says with this cracked voice, he says, uh, uh, when I was going through puberty... I did some crazy things too. He looks around and he says, he says, once upon a time, he says, I stole a box of Malamars. It's a box of cookies. You know, like, yeah. He says, I stole a box of cookies. And the government agent looks at him and says, yeah, we know. (laughs) So what was going on inside Charlie's stepdad? A little, I think, what's happening in Mary now. He's coming face to face with a a greater power, almost like an omniscient kind of presence. It unnerved him. It disturbed him. And in the face of that, he became more honest. Here's the word, more humble about who he is and who he was, what he's really like. Now, how would you feel if you became deeply aware there was someone who saw everything You were doing and saying, do you understand? That's who the God of the Bible is. So let me say the angel's words to you. Hang on. Don't get nervous. The Lord is with you. He knows everything about you. He knows your internet browser history. He knows what you did on your taxes. He is with you. He knows perhaps, statistically speaking, someone in here, you're thinking about sleeping with that person you're not married to. He knows perhaps because he's with you. Maybe you don't really care for the plight of the poor in our community. He knows perhaps because he's with you that you refuse to give to him financially in any way, not because things are too tight, but because you had to have that house, a car, a trip. Now you say, Morgan, that sounds so tough. That sounds condemning more. That, Morgan, that greatly troubles me that disturbs me oh wait that's what the phrase greatly trouble literally means in hebrew it means mary was completely disturbed at hearing an omnipotent omniscient god is with her when we rightly meet jesus it ought to do the same to us which means this is showing us when you come into a relationship with him it means you know that not only is he greater than you not only does he know everything about you but because of that now he has 
the right and the prerogative to tell you what to do and how to live. Because that's what he's doing with Mary right here. Look at what the angel tells her. You'll conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. What do you mean, hey, Mr. Angel, if I go along with God's plan here, if I say yes to God's plan in my life, I don't even get to name my own child? Yes, that's right. See, to name a child in that culture... It was not just a nice thing, it was everything because names meant everything. Let me ask you, what's your everything God's talking to you about today? What's the thing that he is saying is his, not yours? What's the thing he's not just asking? He's telling you to do. See, Jesus, you've got to see this, has sent his own angel to tell his own mother what to name him. So what's Mary seeing? She's seeing this. From the moment that Jesus Christ comes into your life, her life, that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. You don't even get to call him what you want. He's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the King. Or he's nothing. To quote another movie, I'm on fire today. Yes, Indiana Jones. Sorry, old school. Holy Grail. When it comes to a relationship with Jesus, only the penitent man will pass. Only the penitent woman will pass. The penitent man, woman, is humble, kneels before God. Number two, what else does a relationship with Jesus do? It doesn't just cause us to see something. Now it causes us to say something. Let's look at what this causes Mary to say. She says two things. First, she says, it's a question, how will this be? She's going to fill in the blanks. Since I am a virgin. Mary's asking, how is this supposed to happen? You see what she's doing. Here it is. Mary is doubting honestly. She's doubting honestly. She's responding probably like you or I would. And here's why this is so important to see and to name and to look at. Because the Bible never condemns honest doubt in a relationship with Jesus. It does condemn dishonest skepticism. Which it shows you in the story right before this uh, about John the Baptist's father. He gets an angelic visitation too about his wife's miraculous pregnancy. His response though is dishonest skepticism. That's why they're side by side to show you that. And for that reason, John the Baptist's dad is struck mute briefly. See, honest doubt we're shown is one thing. Dishonest skepticism is another. Uh, Years ago, I remember talking with and meeting a student at the University of Texas when I was doing campus ministry full-time, and I spoke with him one night after this campus meeting we were doing, and after the meeting, he came up to me, and and he began to challenge me about a bunch of the stuff that he'd heard, which I love, I always appreciated, but what told me he wasn't open, and what showed me he just wanted to argue was when I began to share with him my story of coming to meet Jesus, of becoming a Christian. It's fairly supernatural in nature. I experienced the spiritual gift of prophecy. I was dramatically born again. Habits and addictions I'd had from years where uh, I was freed from. I experienced a miraculous instantaneous healing in my body, freed me from back pain I'd had for years. And when I told him all of that, He paused, stared sort of blankly at me, and said, I don't believe that. He says, I believe you hallucinated that. (laughs) I'm like, well, I haven't heard that before or since. It's a new one, right? But I said, hey, pal, no offense here, but it's my story, not yours. 
I was there, you weren't. I've actually got lots of eyewitnesses to help corroborate all of this. One of them happens to be, by the way, my wife, because she was there through all of it. Now, that's not the reason I married her. There are lots of other great reasons I married her. But I'm just going to say it doesn't hurt to marry an eyewitness. Anyway, (laughs) see, that's not honest doubt that he's expressing it's more dishonest skepticism. You say, Morgan, is it always one or the other? Listen, I think it is. Because either something is open or shut. A door is open or shut. Now, a door may be slightly cracked, sure, or maybe wide open. But open and shut are fundamentally different categories. Either a person's heart, your heart, is open to Jesus or it's not. Now, many traditional churches, maybe you came out of a church like this, thinks of doubt as fundamentally evil. But if you think of doubt as evil, and well-meaning church people, many of them have, will create, if this is us, becomes us, will create church communities where people can't be honest or emotionally vulnerable and will look down on people who are being just that. I mean, think about it. What if Mary hadn't doubted the angel here, huh? I mean, what if Abraham hadn't doubted God years before? What if Thomas wouldn't have doubted Jesus in the upper room? What if Mary hadn't asked her question here? Well, we wouldn't have gotten the rest of the story. We wouldn't have gotten all of this. See, the Bible shows us that God comes to, he works with, works on people who sometimes doubt him at first. Why? Because that's who he is. That's who we are sometimes. And yet, on the other hand, secular, liberal culture looks at doubt, on the other hand, not as sinful, but as a badge of courage. Here's how the thought goes. I am a skeptical person. I trust nothing and no one, which makes me courageous. Because I am brave enough to escape things like certainty and faith, the Bible. Hear me. But what that perspective, the secular, liberal perspective misses, is what they condemn in people of faith is what they're doing themselves at the core. They're condemning absolute faith, but they have absolute faith in absolute doubt. But doubting can't be absolute. Doubt can't go on forever because if it were, you'd have to doubt everything, including your doubt. And you would have to be cynical about everything, including cynicism, which would immediately leave you out of doubt and cynicism and into faith and absolute truth, see. So do you know, how, 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 how do I know Mary is doubting honestly here? Here's why. Because you can see she's open to evidence. She could have remained a skeptic, right? She could have said, I'm not going to believe. Our people have been waiting for 400 years and nothing's happened. Mr. Angel, there's nothing you can say that could ever convince me. No. In the end, she's open. She listens to the evidence the angel gives her. And she says this in the end, the second thing she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary kept her heart open, and God met her where she was. What if you, if this is you today, if you're doubting, struggling, what if you did this? What if you just kept your heart open? You may just be surprised at how and where and when the God of the Bible meets you. What does it mean to be in a relationship with Jesus? Number one, it means we see something that he's greater than we are. He's Lord. Number two, it means we say something. We come to him with our struggles and our doubts. And number three, finally, it also means now, in the end, that we also sing something. We sing something, and I love this. I love this. On with our story. After, after Mary's visit from the angel ends, she goes right away to see her cousin, who's gonna, or Elizabeth, who's going to be the mother of someone you may have heard of named John the Baptist. So why, we should ask, why does Mary go see Elizabeth? Come on, you know. She's a teenager in that day. She's not married. 
She's pregnant. She's hiding out so she won't have to face people from her town who literally, and let's just say understandably, won't believe her. She's pregnant by God, right? But while she is hiding from the haters, something happens in her heart. She enters Elizabeth's home and her her cousin's voice rings out, speaks words to her. She didn't get from her people or her parents most likely. Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you'll bear. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Elizabeth's blessing now, it moves Mary's heart to sing something that theologians now call the Magnificat. And so what does Mary sing about? It's so important. She sings about, let's notice, two things at once. There's two threads in her song. One of them, first of all, is about God's love. Look at this. She sings of God's love. He's been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He's lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things. He's helped his servant Israel. He's remembered to be merciful. So she sings about God's love. But second, and a little more curiously, she sings about something we don't sing about a lot today. Mary sings about God's judgment. Judgment. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm, scattered those who were proud inside, brought down rulers from their thrones, sent the rich away empty. She's rejoicing, singing about the judgment of God. You say, well, I get singing about the love part, but hang on, hang on. Do you really get it? Let me ask you, do you really think Mary's feeling loved right here? In that moment, where is she? What is she? She is an outcast. She's been rejected by her little village of Nazareth because she got a word from the Lord, right? I mean, she lives a life of poverty. She's poor and rejected, and she's singing about God's love. What's this bit about judgment? Where does that come from? What's she doing here? Let me tell you. This isn't just moving. This is theologically profound. She is articulating the very essence and nature of the God of the universe as a 14-year-old. How could she do this? Here it is. She could do this because of one word the angel spoke to her, which gave her the absolute confidence and freedom to sing. And if you'll see this today, I think you'll get that same freedom and confidence. You say, what was that? What was that one word? Here it is. When Mary asked the angel, how could this happen? The angel immediately says back to her, he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power, here it is, of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, we don't get this in English, but the angel is literally telling her, the power of God will come on you like the cloud. Like the cloud? Power like the cloud? What's the power in the cloud? Is this like some sort of like ancient IT reference? Like, you know, this IBM's got a cloud, Google's got a cloud, God's got a cloud, you know? No, this is something every Jewish person would know. This is a reference to a part of their story from long ago where the founder of their nation, Moses, he goes up on a mountain with God, meets with God, and Moses asks him, Mary would know this, on the mountain, Moses says, God, I want to see who you are. I want to see your glory. I want to know what's inside you, God. And God tells Moses, this is crucial to catch, God doesn't say, sure, I'll show you my glory. He says, no, I'll show you instead my goodness, my goodness. So what does the goodness of God look like? 
Look at this from the book of Exodus. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers, the third and fourth generation. This is the core of God's nature. God loves and God judges. We say this is illogical. We say it's irreconcilable. God says, it's just me being me, y'all. This is my goodness. Why can't I let sin go unpunished? He says, because I'm too good to let evil stand. Why do I want to forgive you, love you? Because I'm too good to let you stay away from me. Listen, this is what was in the cloud, the seemingly irreconcilable goodness of God. Two things, two different natures that are fully present and held together. Love and justice, mercy and judgment. And here now, this is why the angel says to Mary, look at the cloud, Mary. What was in it? What was in it were two seemingly totally different, impossible to reconcile natures and concepts, the thundering justice and the breathtaking mercy of God. And so when Mary asked now, how can God become human? How can the impossible happen? How can two natures, God and human, come together in one place? The angel says, remember the cloud. Remember the cloud. Remember what the glory of God is. Remember, the angel says to her, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible for you, Mary, but not for God. Look at the cloud, Mary. What was inside the cloud is now inside you. And his name is Jesus. Fully God, fully human. Mary carried him. Mary bore him. Mary raised him. And Mary watched him as he taught, as he healed as he loved, as he gave, as he served, as he challenged. And then one day she watched one more thing. In the moment that would pierce her own soul, she watched the boy she bore die in agony, shame, and pain. Why? So that the judgment and the love of God could be upheld. Jesus received what we deserved for all the ways we have not loved God loved our neighbor, and he did it so, so that God could be perfectly loving and forgiving toward us. See, when God forgives you and me, receives us, we don't get what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserves. Why? So that we could know God. And that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, in his being, receiving judgment, in his heart, forgiving and extending mercy for all who would receive him. And let me tell you something. If you don't have a God like that, if you don't have a a God like that, you either have some sort of God who just says he loves somebody, but really there's no cost to it. Sort of, sort of, sorry, like a celebrity on Snapchat. I love all my fans. No, you don't. You don't love them. They haven't done anything for them, right? Or you've got a distant deity who won't dare to touch you. Either way, it's not beautiful. It's not meaningful. Either way, it's not costly. And therefore, it can't change your life and compel you to give away everything like it compelled Mary to give her own life away. Mary saw the goodness of God. It caused her to sing, to give her life to a greater purpose than even she had for herself. In the end, what does it mean to know Jesus today? Number one, it means we receive him is Lord. Number two, it means we bring him our doubts and our struggles. And finally, it means we also then 
We see him and we sing about his goodness. Sing about his goodness. Church, I hope you can say amen to that. Let's go to the Father in prayer, asking for his grace to be ours now.